<laughs> okay, okay, okay. Okay, no, no, that could stay. I mean, if uh, Valentina, just if you just can do something, it. do it. Make yeah, it fix it. <laughs> Make us sound not dumb. <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting it asleep. On today's episode, we'll talk about COP27. No, Artie, it's not the guy that pulled you over in Hoboken when you were 20. It was one time. We'll talk about German dependence on China and actually U.S. dependence on China and the sighting of a new very large bat in Geneva. Christian Bale? It's possible. Let's find out. And later we'll talk with Peter S. Goodman of the New York Times about why billionaires are eating the planet. And he doesn't like them except for the one that owns the Mets. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So can we get into it? Am I allowed to say it still? With no further ado, let's get into it. Well, everybody, welcome to episode 40. This marks a big number for us. It's the also the atomic number of zirconium, a strong gray-white material related to the Persian zargun, meaning gold-like or as gold, and is a source of many wives' wedding rings. Hashtag cubic zirconia. That sound you hear is my wife looking at her hand right now. 40 is also the same age that Rob was when the hit movie Barbed Wire, featuring everyone's favorite Ed Snowden fan, Pamela Anderson, came out. But that's neither here nor there, because I'm filing this bit that we've got coming up under news that you haven't been following, for sure. And it's that Elon Musk has, in fact, bought Twitter in the last couple of weeks, and things are going just peachy. Also, Somali Air is also coming back. This is something you sent me, Rob. I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those iconic brands like Pan Am or you know KLM, and then there's Somali Air. It's been out of business for a little while, but they're looking to do a relaunch. And I think it's one of those where you really want to be in the business lounge. They should get Leo DiCaprio or uh, Alec Baldwin to run it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody with good hair. That was a Martin Scorsese. Right? I mean, they've had a couple shot down, but that's really, uh, that's over now. It happens. It happens. Down. It's yeah. like a Wednesday. Anyway, I got a lot of concerned messages this past weekend after a former heavyweight boxer from Montenegro was charged with trafficking 22 tons of cocaine worth more than $1 billion from Colombia to Europe via the U.S. So this is not... It wasn't me, if anybody was wondering. Goran Gogic, who's 43, was arrested Sunday while trying to board a flight to Zurich. So you can see why I got all these messages from Miami International Airport. So again, for people wondering, it wasn't me. Sounds you like a bad say. rap. I mean, it was all personal use. I, <laughs> 22 tons. Are you saying I have a big nose? <laughs> yeah. So I'm fine, folks. I'm fine. Uh, Great. But there's yeah, also we were... no news on the nose biting guy. No update. Beyond meat guy. Yeah. Beyond cartilage. Apparently, the whole, that whole business is down. People are over it. They're over fake meat. Anyway, we have an update. Moving right along. <laughs> we have an update <laughs> from Michelle on her Egyptian archaeological expedition to find ancient vapes. Maybe she'd tell us more. First of all, you have to say that I went to Egypt for about two weeks on a cruise of the Nile. Nobody got murdered, sadly. You know, there wasn't a mystery. There was nothing to follow up on. There was no army hammer. He's still selling condos in Jamaica, I'm going to say. So. so Gail's okay. You weren't there for a COP27 because that's maybe not no. the right time to take a cruise. <laughs> yeah, I kind of got diverted and went down the Nile instead of Sharm el-Sheikh. You know, what are you going to do? Just as useful as COP27. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and less emitting. Actually, you emitted less than most of the people that went to COP27. 100%. I was on a boat. We were basically rowing half the time. <laughs> What's Inspector Praho like? 
I was looking more forward to Army Hammer and discussing his weird tendencies than discussing Ar- Hercule Poirot, but you know. Him and the Beyond Meat guy have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Michelle, you have to answer the question, did millennials in the year zero behave like their counterparts 2,000 years later? Or are they worse? They're definitely worse. Yeah. They're definitely worse. Forget about the Beyond Meat guy eating noses. They were knocking noses off of statues. That's terrible. I know. But also, like, Tutankhamun was like a millennial. Tutankhamun was like 12. Yeah, that's what I mean. He was probably always looking at his phone, and he never came out of his room and stuff like that until he died and got put in a coffin. I feel like he's more Gen Z. I feel like Tutankhamun is more Gen Z. (laughs) Cleopatra is a little bit more millennial. It's true. They say he did spend all day on his abacus. God. You are boomer. Very Gen Z of him. <laughs> that was actually a confirmation that you're definitely a boomer. I'm slowly morphing into one of you. I don't know how that mm. happened. But anyway, so that's great for the show. We'll get to you a bit later on the, the vibe shift that's actually happening under our noses in different parts of the world now. Did you have anything else to add or up? I think I haven't had any listener feedback. That's because I shut your mic off. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to what went wrong this week's segment and the answer hint is it's a lot a lot has been happening so cop 27 we should mention is happening now as we record this and things aren't looking that great apparently rob tell us more yeah i mean we'll talk about it more next episode and we'll try to reflect on it after it's finished and see what the trade issues are but just listening to all the reports that come out it's kind of a reminder that the drivers of trade are really going to be climate factors many of the big drivers if we don't adapt correctly there'll be massive drops in gdp 10 percent, maybe in the developed world 30 percent in the near term in the developing countries we know that that will have a massive effect on supply chains huge disruptions we've seen a couple already let's say pakistan floods we've seen fires we've seen all sorts of things and we know also on the let's say positive side if you want to look at it that way that right now developing countries don't have a business model to grow without emitting more carbon Mm. so in creating that model there will be a massive opportunity both for those countries and for anybody who's got a good idea of how that should work all the rest of us grew by emitting more the chinese tripled their emissions over 10 years. And their argument is, why should I do it differently if you got ahead by uh, polluting? True. But when the world's ending, you know, you start to think, mm, maybe I do have to do it in any case. So buy a Tesla. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, buy a Tesla is our recommendation, folks. Please. You heard it here first. Please hit the subscribe button. Elon, send the check, dire- <laughs> send the check directly to Artie's <laughs> slush fund. But the good thing is, I mean, already there's potentially a positive opening. There's very positive. So this is breaking as we're recording this. So President Biden and President Xi Jinping of China, they agreed to restart talks. So they haven't agreed to anything except for talking more between their countries as part of international climate negotiations, which is, again, a breakthrough in the effort to avoid this catastrophic global warming and all the ensuing issues that, that you talked a little bit about. Talks between China and the U.S. over climate had been frozen for months, and this came during rising tensions over Taiwan and trade, just to name a few things, as well as this number of other security issues, which we won't get into. China went as far as suspending all cooperation with the U.S., including around climate change in August, as retaliation for everybody's favorite speaker, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. I love her, by the way. And leader. <laughs> so the key sticking point here for me is that, as Rob alluded to, developing countries, or not only developing countries, not only limited to them, but a lot of the responses you heard when people would talk about, well, we need to do X, Y, and Z to, to take care of the climate crisis was that, well, the two biggest polluters aren't working together, so why should I? And they're not doing much, so why should we, essentially? And so when the U.S. and China come together through around this ambition, it removes that argument from the table, which is a good thing, I think. 
No, definitely. And they, we know they have to be somewhere in the conversation for things to really move also politically in the two different camps. But yeah. more on that next time. Yeah. So stay tuned. There's also a bit about why political economy is still a class worth taking in college. So there was the German chancellor's recent trip to Beijing, which raised a number of questions on actually how dependent Germany is on Chinese manufacturing while we're in this age of decoupling and also coming after what we saw with the Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. And then obviously this is also on top of Apple, which is a U.S. company or designed in the U.S. at least, which is sort of stuck in the middle, Steelers wheel style between the U.S. and, and China. And I know you like that, that little Love that. reference. Love, love reference. In there. So as I mentioned, Olaf Scholz took some German CEOs to China to talk business. The substance was not very important, obviously, but the symbolism is very important. So the Germans are saying they're not ready for a decoupling, although the U.S. is saying they are. And the reason why is that the biggest market for German cars and chemicals is China. And the supply chain for rare earths and other materials is critical for Germany to keep manufacturing and keep it up as a supply chain partner for those intermediate goods. Absolutely. And even the U.S., although it's talking big, is still massively linked to China, exports more to China than anywhere except Mexico and Canada. It still, of course, imports more from China than anywhere else by a long shot. And Apple's, as you said, emblematic. They can't de-link their manufacturing operation with well, China. Although, granted, they are trying. They're saying they could produce more in India in the last couple of months. I think when the iPhone was just launched, the really, iPhone... I mentioned that, but this is, this is marginal. As long as we talk big about decoupling with China, it's right now in the short term absolutely impossible. If you mm. think about decoupling with China versus, let's say, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it would be one million times as bad. And we even talk about a, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would have such massive disruptions in supply chains and in basically our manufacturing and many other industries that would make Ukraine pale by comparison. So this, I think it's important to keep that in mind even when the rhetoric gets heated. So in true middle-imagined fashion, I want to say I hear what you're saying. But here's why you're wrong. That's usually how you, you start. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're very much right. For me, right. the fact that Apple is even talking about shifting some of the production to countries like India and others also already speaks volumes because it's not an easy decision to take. I'm sure there was a lot of due diligence done and hand wrangling on their part because China is gives it such a leg up on, on the competition or many companies. The fact that they're even thinking about doing these things, and we've seen zero COVID, the effect those policies have had even recently on the launch of the iPhone. Orders for the newest iPhone have been delayed specifically as a result of some of these zero COVID policies within China. And so that's having a negative effect on the Chinese economy and the way people perceive it. So as with most things in life, I think the truth is or is somewhere in the middle as well. No, I think that's right. But we see Germany being more reluctant, let's say, to, to participate in the rhetoric and the, even the decoupling. So U.S. is pouring massive subsidies into chips, for instance, which we talked about to try to find ways to do that. The subsidies and legislation related to electric cars and so on, which we don't necessarily see happening in, in Central Europe. But there's definitely more at risk when we're talking about Germany's relationship to China in economic terms. But I also would say that this wouldn't be the first time they've been hedging their bets. But anyway, moving on, we're going to talk a little bit later with Peter S. Goodman on why billionaires should pay their taxes. And that comes at a perfect time for this news story, which is the OECD tax chief was recently warning of future or increasing amount of trade wars if the global minimum tax is not implemented. So as I mentioned, the OECD's departing tax chief, who masterminded the most radical reforms for corporate taxation in, I would say, a century, has warned that the US and Europe risk reviving trade wars and facing up to hundreds of billions of dollars in lost revenue if they fail to move on the deal that they reached last year, which we talked quite a bit about. We're actually quite excited for. 
So we've seen the pushback to the, the law passed by the Biden administration in recent months. We've seen France talking about doing something similar. We've seen what Europe or the EU countries are talking about taxing the Amazons of the world on an individual basis if there is no such uh, agreement reached, which the U.S. obviously is not in favor of. So I think he's talking a lot of sense. Yeah, I think the interview later will really shed a lot of light on this. But so billionaires are mobile. Billionaires have incredible influence. Billionaires can shop around for tax legislation. Billionaires can do all these things. And it's not just billionaires, obviously. It's also multinationals. So I think this comes at exactly the right time, you know, to link with this book. And there is an increased consciousness, but we still, countries still have to work together across jurisdictions to make it happen. And we know right now a lot of our multilateral systems are a little bit broken, but OECD does seem to be one of the best vehicles for it. And I do think there's a positive dynamic, which Goodman will talk about later. People realize it's an issue. People realize it's a thing and mm. they're willing to do something about it. So let's see. And, and one of those things that they mentioned was this idea that the 100 top multinationals would have to declare profits and pay tax in the countries where they do business. As you mentioned, the Europeans are making a big deal of this. I think this would be an amazing step because, of course, they need these markets. They're not going to exist without them. On a positive note, <laughs> the supply chain crisis is apparently over. Perhaps more important than the energy crisis, Ukraine war, or China, is something called the Patagonia Vest recession. That's true. Which is hitting us. That's right. And uh, I'm very sorry to hear that, and I'm sure Peter S. Goodman will be very sorry to hear that billionaires are actually taking a little bit of a haircut here. Artie, can you tell us a little bit about that? That's a nice way of putting it. So yeah, I really wish we had come up with that term Patagonia Vest Recession. Unfortunately, we didn't, but we're going to pretend that we did. The 20 richest tech billionaires have apparently collectively lost over nearly half a trillion dollars this year amid the stock market's uh, sharp tumble. We know the stock market has tumbled quite a bit because Rob will not stop talking about his 401k. This loss of wealth is- I'm doing uh, what they tell me, which is don't look. Don't. I haven't looked for months. Yeah, should be fine. Hear no evil, see no evil. Yeah, it's going to anyway, be fine. So this loss of wealth is more than the market values of all but seven companies in the S&P 500. So it's getting so bad, they may just soon be, heaven forbid, millionaires. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this comes as tech companies are coming off a period of outsized growth. And this has been spurred on by the pandemic. Longtime listeners, I know we've been talking through this. In addition to them reading it probably everywhere they look for the past two, three years. What's happening now is sort of we a We broke the story. We broke. Well, we talked best about it. Let's put it that way. Anyway, yeah. what's happening now is something of a correction as they sort of recalibrate into a time where people aren't stuck at home glued to their devices. So Meta has laid off 11,000 workers. Lyft has cut 700. Amazon has just announced that they're laying off, I think, around 10,000. You know what I hate the idea of is that a company can just fire like half of its office workers and still continue to do exactly the same thing it was doing before. For those of us in middle management, this is a core, very frightening. That's a core competency. Yes, <laughs> you need more folks at desks. I mean, this is an outrage. So, I want this to stop. Uh, the, the thing that stuck out to me, especially on this Amazon one, is that most of the firing, the layoffs are coming from the corporate side of the business. So we've been talking a lot about how the future of work means low-wage workers, more blue-collar workers are at risk, et cetera, et cetera. I, this is obviously a very small sample size, and it's only we're talking about it in real time. But the fact that, that we're hitting sort of the white-collar workers is, is also interesting. I mean, this, is, this whole thing's got to stop. Um, but also we had, a, you know, this reminds us, we've been talking about a plunge in productivity in Western countries that's unknown. That now you fire half of everybody, productivity suddenly goes up. <laughs> so I think we're going to see a massive shift in the economic indicators. You're what we call a dinosaur. <laughs> you're just, you're all stick, no carrot. <laughs> I'm a highly productive dinosaur. Half of everybody near me got just got fired. 
Peter S. Goodman is the global economic correspondent for the New York Times, based in New York. My old job. Over the course of three decades in journalism, Goodman has covered some of the most momentous economic transformations and upheavals, sorry Baldwin, the global financial crisis of 2008 and the Great Recession, as well as being the Times New York-based national economic correspondent, the emergence of China into a global superpower as the Shanghai bureau chief for the Washington Post, as well as a dot-com bubble as a technology reporter for the Post based in Washington. During his five-year stint in London for the Times, he wrote about Brexit, the rise of right-wing populism in Europe, and the catastrophe of the coronavirus pandemic, among other things. It's also been rumored that Peter may or may have not been reporting live from Dallas in November of 1963. But we'll ask him that on this interview. However, he did cover Sarah Palin, and her star continued to rise after his reporting. So we'll hear that this is a concrete. She's still looking for Russia from her home. Peter has also been recognized as some journalism's top honors, including two Gerald Loeb Awards. Everybody know Jerry Loeb. Seven prizes from the Society of the American Business Editors and Writers. Those parts are raucous. His work as part of the Times series on the roots of the 2008 financial crisis was also a finalist for the Pulitzer. He's the author of two books, the best-selling Davos Man, which we've talked a lot about and I've actually almost finished reading, and Past Due, The End of Easy Money and the Renewal of the American Economy, 2009, which was named one of Bloomberg's top 50 business books. Peter, thanks for joining us on the on the podcast. We're really excited to to have you on. I know that I have been biting Rob's ear off talking about the book. This was actually the first book I've been reading since I had a serious ski accident in January. So the first book that I've actually read front front to cover. It didn't help with the brain trauma that I had. It actually made me more cynical, if, that, <laughs> if you will. But well, I'm not aiming for cynicism, but I'm sorry to hear about the brain trauma. Yeah, I'm doing much better now. The good thing is I. Yeah. I cut down a lot on the jokes. Yeah, that, that is good. So this this podcast yeah, used yeah. to be much worse before January. So Geneva is an even more humorless place than usual. Exactly. Yeah. There's this is how what they do to Americans. That that is the frightening, <laughs> frightening. They, they tell you go skiing. It's fun. Nothing will happen. <laughs> Although they came out with MC with MC12, that was pretty. <laughs> I, yeah. It's good fun. Actually, now I'm thinking about it. It would have been perfect for this interview if I happened to have had my ski accident in Davos, but it wasn't. Sadly, it was. Uh, it happened in Zermatt, not in Davos. Uh, it, you might have gotten a helicopter. That could have been very I, I did get a helicopter. I don't remember any of the ride. Apparently, it was a really great view of the Matterhorn from what the uh, paramedics <laughs> told me, but I don't remember any of it. It's a little... Yeah, you probably weren't appreciating that. That humor is a little macabre, but anyway. Anyway, moving right along. So, Peter, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? I understand you've spent a lot of time outside of the U.S. as well as now being based there in New York. But tell us a little bit about your your story. So, I started off my career actually freelancing in Southeast Asia for a bunch of American and British papers. And then work came back to the States and worked for a while as a cub reporter at the Anchorage Daily News. That was my first real newspaper job where I covered a then completely unknown member of the Wasilla City Council, which was part of my beat, named Sarah Palin. And I went to grad school for a little while and then spent 10 wonderful years at the Washington Post, including six in China, where I was the Asian economic court. Got to the New York Times just in time for the, the Great Recession, was the national economic correspondent uh, starting in the fall of 2007, moved to London in 2016 to write about the European economy just as just in time for Brexit and decided that I'd seen enough of this kind of pillaging by the billionaire class leading to the opportunism by extreme right-wing movements that have since actually taken power 
in many countries I was visiting in those years to, to write a book about it. And here we are. You are like the four horsemen in, in, in one. Everywhere you go, Brexit happens, Great Recession. <laughs> Don't, I think we need to uh, say it's you, not your fault. If you can figure out what my next post is and, and short it now, <laughs> yes, I, I, I would recommend that heartily. Also, I neglected to mention, I worked in Japan for the Japan Times. I guess that was my first real newspaper quasi job. I was a freelancer, but that was right before the bubble I burst. Was just about that. And I was a telecom reporter in Washington for the Post right before the dot com bubble. <laughs> so, yeah, I do seem to have a track record of showing up right but, before all hell breaks. But Sarah Palin didn't crash until much later. That's true. So that's a kind of. But actually, Sarah Palin's done just fine, and China did pretty well too. Yeah. So there are counterexamples already. Fantastic. But still, don't come to Geneva. There, there are. The Times doesn't put you in Geneva. <laughs> well, one accident is enough this year for me in a lifetime. <laughs> so so your, your book has been out for about a year. Came out in January. Excuse me, right? Right around the time is my accident. Perfect. <laughs> right before accident. So it argues that uh, rising inequality and concentration of wealth among billionaires sort of comes at the expense of most of the world's population. And it, this hasn't been by accident, essentially, is, is the gist of your book, if, if I can paraphrase. That's exactly right. Uh, I mean, the whole point of the book is, is to kind of put a frame around events that we tend to think of as so complex that they can't be comprehended. Globalization, technological shifts, you know, we're told that there are all of these mysterious and complex explanations for things that we know in our bones that, you know, in many major uh, economies, middle class people have seen their living standards stagnate and in many cases, like in my own country here in the States, decline. And, and yes, the point of this book is to argue that that did not happen by accident. That was the result of a systematic bottom-up transfer of wealth. It's not some sort of conspiracy. It's stuff that's happened in our legislatures, in our court systems. You know, it's happened in plain view, but we have seen policies uh, written by the beneficiaries of this, you know, winner takes all economy where everybody declines except for the handful of people who are powerful enough to essentially control the levers of democracy. And that's this group I call Davos man. You know, the, it's a term I stole from the political scientist Samuel Huntington who coined it in 2004. I'm obviously referring to people who go to the World Economic Forum in Davos, but a special slice of the billionaire class that would have us believe that they are the solution to our problems. They are not only not the reason for our, uh, all of the manifestations of inequality from cynicism in democracy itself to low vaccine rates in, in, in many major economies, they, they, they would have us believe that there's the solution to our problems. And that's a, an argument that they make again and again. So my question would be, and this is hard, you know, kind of hard conversation for me to hear because I went to graduate school in the nineties and we were all about Washington consensus and liberal economic solutions and so on. Many of which basically the folks you're mentioning put into place. But so the, the question I guess I have is, let's say the decline in real wages started much before these kind of celebrities came onto the scene, right? Late 70s was when real wages started to drop in the U.S. So when did this these billion, these kind of rapacious billionaires start to start this? Because we're thinking Elon Musk and sort of Bezos and stuff, but you're talking about something that started much before, is it? Oh, I mean, this is a tradition in American history that, you know, goes back to the robber barons, right? I mean, back, I mean, you can go back to the to the 
late 19th century, see the tendency to amass monopoly power and to try to write the rules in favor. I mean, the, the history that I'm most interested in, yeah, you put your finger on it from the late 70s. You know, there's deregulation. We have Thatcher in the UK. We have Reagan in the US. We have large tax cuts for wealthy people. We have essentially an evisceration of antitrust law. We have rules that make it harder and harder for labor unions to collectively bargain, which means working people don't get their, their, their piece of the action. And the result of that is that those at the highest, at the heights of the economy do extraordinarily well. People with rare skills, people with advanced educations, they, their position to do well and just about everybody else doesn't do well. That's, that's the story that I'm telling. So as the name implies, we, we talk a fair bit about trade on this podcast. Now, it sure. seems to be blamed by politicians across Western countries, across the voters within those countries for many of the world's problems, rightly or wrongly. Has it been made to be collateral damage from this thesis you just sort of outlined so eloquently for us? Well, you know, it's a great question. I'm very careful in the book to say that we shouldn't fall for the anti-trade rhetoric. I mean, trade has worked according to the designs of the people who gathered at Bretton Woods at the end of the Second World War, who made trade the linchpin of what, for lack of a better term, we could call the liberal world order. Trade kept Europe peaceful and prosperous. Trade certainly enriched the United States and the U.S. is the ultimate winner uh, from, from globalization. What hasn't happened where we've failed, and again, it's not an accidental failure, it's a success on the part of the people who are wealthy and powerful enough to actually write the rules, is we haven't distributed the winnings of trade in an equitable way. Now, let's just note that Sweden, which is a very open economy, does a lot of trade, is a major exporter, is not coercing. It has its own problems, as I detail in the book. It, in fact, is now ruled by an extremist right-wing government that's demonizing immigrants. But it, by and large, has been fairly pro-trade because Sweden, like the Nordics in general, runs a very successful form of social democracy where everyone understands we pay very high taxes. And in exchange for those high taxes, we get a lot of very useful government services. Our kids can go to the school for free. Uh, everybody's got health care. You can quit your job if you don't like it. Go start another job and not worry that if you get some horrible diagnosis, you're going to go without health care, which is the situation in the U.S. And if you have a baby in Sweden, the the, the two parents can are, are, are able to take 500 days of parental leave, divide it however they like. And, and that's, that's the system they've got. And if you lose your job, if, if you, if you are working at a company that suddenly falls prey to competition under trade, you get very generous job retraining. That's highly effective. You get unemployment benefits and your, your family economy really doesn't get hit that much. Whereas in the, in the U S and, and in the UK and to a certain extent in France and, and in Italy, if, if you lose a job, but especially in the U.S., the U.S. is really the outlier. If you lose a job, it is not that far to fall all the way down to going to look for shelter, you know, outside as a place to sleep tonight. And, and that is directly the result, not of, you know, nefarious policies pursued by trading partners. That is a result of decisions that are made in boardrooms in New York in Seattle, in the halls of Congress, we have cut taxes for wealthy people and corporations. We have failed to invest 
in public infrastructure. We have made education and housing extremely expensive. And as a result, a handful of people are benefiting from trade deals that are written by and large by corporate interests positioned to to benefit. And and the rest of society is still waiting for the promised benefits. So you, one of the, the chapters in the book that stuck out to me, in addition to the, the one on Staten Island, a place I know a little bit about, hmm. that was the part where you're focused on the steel mill in Granite City in, in Illinois. That's Illinois, not, not Kentucky. Already. I know they're all flyover With, states. Wisconsin, yeah. Kentucky, whatever. <laughs> but for me, what stuck out is that these are not people who necessarily woke up one day or, or came out of the womb and said, I am a fervent anti-trader. They were sort of victims of the, the environment which they live in, and then they I guess you could use the word collateral damage for uh, this managed globalization, if you will. So they became, in effect, Trump voters when when they were very much uh, sort of democratic through and through. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a it's a story I tell throughout the book. People who, I mean, Italy, for instance, is a very extreme example, right? You see parts of Italy that literally voted for communist party candidates as recently as the 80s. And ever since we're stalwart supporters of the center left, who in recent years have embraced the extreme right, because this part's real, they feel that they've been dispossessed by the elite. And that was the story that I ran into in Granite City, Illinois. So I'm going to this town on the Mississippi River where the whole town grew up as a steel town. The wages from the steel mill have financed, you know, vacations, insurance offices, legal services, supermarkets, bowling alleys, like the whole town basically runs because they make steel in this town. And they haven't been making much steel in this town. And part of that is because of unfair Chinese competition, but it hasn't stopped the executives from cashing in multi-million dollar stock options and various bonuses. And so the workers who, like many union workers in the US, traditionally vote for the Democratic Party, essentially say, well, why are we continuing to support the status quo when the status quo has just screwed us for decades? And we're, we're out of work. Our local businesses are going out of business. We're having a hard time paying the rent or the mortgage. People are moving away. The town's dying. And meanwhile, along comes Donald Trump, who is speaking loudly about how you know China's the problem. I'm going to take a two by four upside the head of China. I'm going to monkey wrench the global economy. Americans are getting screwed in, in, in the time of globalization. And these, these are people who, you know, these are working people who are not really up on the particulars of geopolitics, but they get that China is a threat to their paychecks. And one of these candidates is talking loudly about it. And the other, in that case, Hillary Clinton, is connected to the Clinton legacy, which is really about the kind of globalization that we've lived through. And so these people, some of them catered to by Trump's white supremacist tendencies, essentially saying sometimes coded and sometimes outright that white people in America are not supposed to be the ones who have to worry about unemployment benefits and, and, and welfare checks. And, uh, and, and there's an overwhelming shift amongst uh, people like that and communities like that for Trump. And Trump comes in and at least rhetorically seems to deliver, even though he actually damages the very communities that he's supposedly championing while he's really catering to Davos man through massive tax My cousins didn't get that memo. So I'll make sure they, they, I highlight this, and this part of the they'll, they'll, be hate, they'll be hate listening as usual. <laughs> so I think we need to shift gears here and get to the really important part, which is all this other stuff hasn't been the important no, part. No, 
No, not at all. No, no. Now we really get into the the, the, the hard hitting. Okay, here comes the important part. Yeah, this is the hard part. So you, so you've lived as an expat in Europe and Asia, and so yeah. ask, what did you learn about your home country while living abroad, and especially now you're back? What have I learned about my own country? Well, I mean, I've learned that we really are an outlier in terms of not providing things that are accepted as just basic goods in most of the rest of democratic society. I mean, the fact that there are, depending upon how you count them, you know, tens of millions of people who can't count on healthcare uh, and tens of millions of low-wage workers, uh, in some cases, high-wage workers who can't count on a sick leave. And what I, what I think I've learned, you know, along the way is that a lot of our narratives, and this was another motivation for me to write the book, was to lay bare these false narratives. A lot of these narratives about how, like, you know, we pray at the altar of Joseph Schumpeter, the Austrian economist. We're, we're all for creative destruction, unlike those, you know, nanny state loving, you know, socialists in Europe. That's just nonsense. It's just demonstrably false. And that in, in fact, many cases we've, we've sold this story because it serves the interests of the handful of people who benefit when we cut taxes for the richest people. And then we hurt people with the results of that slashing infrastructure saying we don't have money for things people actually want like health care like help when you lose a job i mean these are things that pull well like people actually want these things and yet we supposedly can't afford them so it sounds kind of bad but there's good things too <laughs> like we got you know the hamburger the hamburger <laughs> i'm a fan well i'm a look i'm a new yorker right? i'm a, i'm a it's good to be back where there's decent pizza and bagels and smoked salmon you know these are good things I like baseball. I'm a fan of the NBA. I, I've never managed to get into sports despite my travels around. Like I, I got into English soccer a bit, but not. I, I never understood cricket. Having started following you on Twitter the last month or so, I almost canceled the interview when I saw that you keep posting about the Brooklyn Nets. And uh, why is that? Just uh, that, that I don't think we have enough time to talk about why the Nets are bad. Rob yeah. is looking at me with a blank glazed over stale like, like what, what are we talking about what the hell are we talking about <laughs> so, so so this wouldn't be a podcast about interviewing the guy who wrote davos man without asking you about davos now we've heard a we heard a rumor we're not sure if this is true but we're asking we, we thought you can confirm this with us is that reporters or just guests in general have to do a shot every time somebody mentions stakeholder capitalism ohana or both. Is, is it true? I would file that under too good to check. I think you should just run with it. <laughs> I, I'm not going to shoot that the down. For you. Yeah, exactly. Who is your favorite billionaire? <laughs> That's a good question. Who's my favorite billionaire? I can't say that I have a favorite billionaire. I don't know. Is LeBron a billionaire? Michael Jordan is my favorite billionaire. There you yeah, go. Good. That's good. One of the, one of the Kardashians. Are the Kardashians billionaires? I'm I'm not qualified to say more than two words about the Kardashians are in the same bucket for me as the Nets and the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> what are you? You're you're hating on the Mets? Yeah, yeah. it's they're the uh, you're Yankees. they're the other. I'm basically. Oh, if you had told me this, I never would have agreed. To <laughs> I'm, I'm just the Homer. The Nets, whatever, man. We, we I'm I, I'm part of a very small tribe, like. Hate is better than just being completely ignored. That's fine. But if you're going to hate on the Mets, can't count on that. Okay, I, okay, okay. So fair. you can watch the Nets because I'm sure they'll be trash for a while. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. They will. No, I think we yeah. need a book on how the Mets could inspire emotion at a Hey, the Mets won 101 games this year. Have a little. Wait, just, hold on. Now we're going to bring it back yeah. to this, to this, the just the, the, the zeitgeist yeah. of your book. So the Mets are owned by Steve Cohen, right? And we. 
He's my favorite billionaire. He's as long as he signs, <laughs> and he's he's a he's a felon. But as long as he figures out how to get Trey Turner in or Shohei Otani, I'm all I'm all good with Steve okay, Cohen. So you- and that's stakeholder capitalism. Edit. So I think we we've got to come to the last question here. As a you know as a as a reporter and somebody dealing with economic issues, you must have been to Geneva. And if you've been to Geneva, you'll know that we only eat the national food here, which is kebab. So what is your favorite kebab in Geneva? And I'll give you a hint. Parfum de Beirut. I was going to say Alamir. I, You know, I don't know Geneva well enough to, to answer that question. Though I have had some good kebab in Geneva, and, and it's a good thing because I generally think of Geneva as a place that exists to console people in Washington, D.C. that they don't live in the most boring city of the world. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> That is really, but you can get out of it a lot easier than you can get out of New York. I mean, you or Washington. I can take a bicycle to the. Oh no, that's true. There's much better skiing around Geneva than there is in Washington, and better food, at least. Again, tying back this, the beginning of this interview to quote Sarah Palin, I can see the airport from my house. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess we we do need to ask you about because this podcast is scientific, if nothing else. We always ask people about uh, Staten Island. (laughs) <laughs> which you've mentioned a couple times in Davos, man. Have you been there in person? I'm serious. I've been there in person. I've driven across it very often. In fact, I can see, I used to be able to see the Verrazano Narrows Bridge from before I moved. Yeah, I'm a fan of Staten Island, actually. I mean, I'm going to sound like such an obnoxious non-Staten Islander, but good pizza, love the ferry. Oh, good minor league baseball. It's, just, it's because Artie edits the podcast that the Staten Island content stays in. So, magically. I don't know how it happens. It's just, it's just, it's like globalization. It's not managed. It just happens yeah, that exactly. all my jokes get in there. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, if people want to buy the book, want to see more about the work that you're doing, where can they do that? Uh, they can jump on my website, petersgoodman.com. They can check out my author page at the New York Times. You can follow me on Twitter, Peter S. Goodman, or just Google Davos Man Goodman, and it will pop up. You can buy it however you like. Excellent. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, and hope to have you on you again once Davos Man 2 comes out, because I always love the sequels. (laughs) Sequels. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys very much. This was a lot of fun. That brings us to the next segment. This is where Michelle talks to us about the vibe shift. I think we should rename this M. Night Shyamalan's The, the Vibe Shiftening. So <laughs> The Shiftening. <laughs> so over to you, Michelle. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, the vibe is shifting, but it's a very small vibe this week. It's the vibe at Barilla. So the company that makes pasta. Barilla, Barilla. Italian pasta. Barilla. The problem is that this company was apparently promoting that they made their pasta in Italy, or that at least it was Italian pasta. And this lady who was on Twitter just drove by a Barilla factory in Iowa and got so mad, she just went on a full Twitter rant talking about how it was deceptive to the consumer in general that they were making pasta in the U.S. and not in Italy. So how do you feel about that? No, it's a supply chain. I mean, you get certain elements from Italy and then they're assembled in Iowa. Exactly. And what's wrong with that? Pasta from Iowa. Pasta from Iowa. Hey, (laughs) Hey, there's plenty of Italian sounding last name. Iowa, the capital of pasta. In our journalistic way, we confirmed that there really is pasta that's manufactured in Iowa. There's an actual factory. But the problem is not even that. The problem is they're being accused of producing pasta with bugs in it now and feeding it to the Americans because somehow the wires got crossed, the tweets got crossed, as they often do on Twitter nowadays. First of all, Barilla tweeted something about eating bugs. Mm. 
at some point in their Twitter career. And this lady took that tweet and decided that that meant that they were feeding Americans bugs, that apparently the Iowa plant is making bug pasta and selling it to the poor, unsuspecting Americans. So maybe the globalization is completely over and it was all because of bugs and pasta. I, this is most likely a, a parody account, courtesy of Elon's new um, Twitter <laughs> changes. changes. Actually, I think we've got, to, we've got really a globalization case study here because this should be what should say on the Barilla package is designed in Italy. In Iowa. Iowa. Yeah, exactly. The Apple is, you know, proudly designed in Oregon. Thank you for throwing some serious shade at Apple right now. I love it. <laughs> That's where Apple pasta is also put together. So, Michelle, thanks for keeping your eye on the vibe shift from Egypt, Berlin, and all places east. Shifting, but okay. Bye, Michelle, and thanks for letting us know where the vibe is going. Hey, Rob, why is your uh, phone broken yet again? <sighs> well, it's been real wet out, Artie, and with all this rain, my phone slipped out of my hand and broke. Another expensive thing for me to fix. Rob, I think you would not have had this problem if you used case folklore, either now or in the summer, which you probably didn't use then either. Case folklore? What's that? Case Folklore offers customized phone cases which come in an assortment of designs. Right here you've got a Taylor Swift one, which, which I'm using. You can also find out more by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore and using the promo code SPLAINING at checkout. Don't get the Taylor Swift one. That was just a joke. We're not really fans. I wish I'd done that back when it was hot out, but I'll definitely go to Case Folklore now. Thanks, Case Folklore. That leads us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. So, Artie, we are tracking a couple of big stories here. Obviously, when eagles don't dare, city of Geneva pulled the plug on an anti-drone brigade. They had been training eagles to intercept mechanical drones in the air to safeguard dignitaries. This was actually a plot line from Jurassic Kingdom. How they're going to use velociraptors to <laughs> save the world. Spoiler alert, it does go bad in the end. I thought this was an article from The Onion, but it's actually a Bloomberg. It's a real thing. They were training eagles. I, I think it started going downhill when they tried to name it Feathered Dome. Feathered Dome. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know. Where this, is this, she? this week in local news literally just write themselves. <laughs> There's nothing for us to do. Well, on a more serious note, folks, this past little while, there was observed in Geneva a very unusual sighting, a huge bat of the type, it's called a molos de Sestoni, everybody knows this, 40 centimeters, which is about 17 inches. Which neither of which I can visually picture. It's a real, mind. real, real big bat, although I, still pretty light, 30 to 40 grams. I thought Christopher Nolan was just shooting the Batman. <laughs> we don't know on site, we don't know, folks, the roads were closed. Or this is really a real news story. This is Yet a real again, news story. There's a bat with very unusual saw. bat sighting. Apparently, it's got a very characteristic cry. Many people had reported this into the Geneva wildlife tracking system. Yeah, the Batman really did have a weird voice. And Nobody then they went out and found her. It was a female. Sadly, already this story does not have a happy ending. She had had a little bit of a bad time. She had many injuries and, in fact, had to be sent up to bat heaven during her passage here in Geneva. So we do hope... Uh, that she did reach heaven, and of course, I was going to make a meatloaf reference. 
straight bad out of hell. All right. But anyway, delete. But, uh, starting the story. Y- again. You you should have warned me. I need to start because I should I would have actually read the story, or you should have told me that somebody was going to die. I didn't read the story because that how would I know quickly. about that? Because now I look like the bad guy. That needs to be that needs to be deleted. <laughs> no, Blair, what is it? That's got to stay go. it. No, that's got to go. Oh, really? What? We're going to have a dead bat. The PETA? Oh, the PETA's going <laughs> to boycott this? <laughs> bat? Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 40, brought to you by Artie's Cubic Zirconium. Spoiler alert, the diamond was real. Our collective dependence on China and, of course, Geneva's unemployed eagles. That's a big voting demographic. We also want to thank our guest, Peter S. Goodman, for joining us once again, as well as executive producer Michelle Ogin and Valentina Saponara for highlighting the vibe shift as well as helping you produce this and every TS episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We read all of them, so be gentle. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining or just email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, we do have to remind you, listen responsibly. Listen responsibly.